Hello, welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and this is John W. Welch. And we get to start the book of 2 Nephi, chapter 1 and 2 today, these fabulous chapters of Lehi's farewell. This 2 Nephi is an amazing book, Lynn. But it's so different than 1 Nephi, you know? What, what do you like about 2 Nephi? Well, I sort of feel like 1 Nephi is stories and action and details. It's something like someone who's adolescent would enjoy it. Whereas 2 Nephi has a lot of deep doctrine for mature people to say, what do you do when expectations are not met? And how do you stay attached? And 2 Nephi is so filled with Christ. 2 Nephi is just an amazing book. Many people get through 1 Nephi a number of times. But then they start hitting these doctrinal sections. And of course, there are a lot of Isaiah chapters. And we'll talk about the structure. It's not that it's a random book. It's very carefully planned, but it's, it's also spending a lot of time looking at future events and talking about philosophical and theological concepts, where First Nephi was, was action-packed. You know, in fact, I even wrote up a little slide that describes the difference between first and second Nephi. I start out with the dates. You know, I don't know when Lehi is first called. I know they leave Jerusalem in 600 BC, but is it one or two years serving as a prophet? I don't know. But he goes up before the temple's destroyed. The temple's destroyed in 586, and that starts with second Nephi. So I think first Nephi is just this small few years here. Not only do we have faith building stories and focus on the current events, that are consistent with what we read in the Old Testament in 2 Kings. But Lehi and his family escape murder, and the family then becomes sort of an exodus, sort of powdering Moses' exodus, you know. And other family units join together. We've got Ishmael's family and Zoram coming in, sibling rivalry. Um, they have so many challenges physically that they are delivered from. Yeah, like you say, a lot of the problems that Israel faced in leaving Egypt uh, Lehi's family faces that in leaving Jerusalem. And I think in 1 Nephi, Nephi tries to write it that way, to even make those parallels. In 1 Nephi, Lehi's family left, and now Nephi's family, in a few chapters in 2 Nephi, chapter 5, his family will have to leave. But then in 2 Nephi, it's like we've now crossed the, the Red Sea. It's, of course, yeah. the ocean. Yeah. And we've arrived at the Promised Land. In parallel to this sibling rivalry, in 2 Nephi, we have the example of Jacob's righteousness. And Jacob is phenomenal in his understanding of our Savior. I love Jacob's words on the Lord. And then as in 1 Nephi, we had a physical deliverance. Now in 2 Nephi, we have a spiritual deliverance. You had mentioned before that a lot of the words are paralleled. And I noticed in 1 Nephi chapter 1, Lehi is prophesying that Jerusalem will be destroyed, but God has mercies. The exact same words are used in 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 2. You know, he's talking about Jerusalem being destroyed, and then he refers to God's mercies. And I think that makes a strong point that Nephi is wanting to preserve the legacy of Lehi in as many ways as he can. And one of them is to now apply Lehi's prophecies and statements, which had applied to the old world and now also applicable in the new in world. The new world. Yeah. So they become foundational. And Nephi then, who knows that he needs to be and will be blessed by Lehi to be the spokesman and the leader. And Nephi had already been promised that he would become a leader over his brothers, uh, back in 1 Nephi chapter 2. 
And so Nephi knows that he has to carry out this responsibility with the visions that he's had. If Laman and Lemuel are left in charge, the whole purpose of the uh, Exodus Exodus by Lehi's family isn't going to play out. Sadly, sadly. So Nephi wants that authority that he is indeed the successor of his uh, father, Lehi. You had talked to me before about the outline being chiastic in the whole book of, just a loose chiasm in the whole book of Second Nephi. And so I w- wrote down a little outline, um, starting with Lehi's farewell, blessing his posterity, and then the beautiful chapter two on agency and redemption and the fall. And then um, the writings from Joseph in chapter three and Nephi's Psalm in chapter four, the Nephites separating in chapter five, Jacob six, this two-day sermon, and Nephi's third witness, all the Isaiah chapters that, that Christ is the redeemer of Israel. And um, then Nephi's interpretation of that. And once I realized that um, I had to put this outline in some sort of a chiastic structure, the ending of Nephi's farewell began paralleling with Lehi's, Lehi's farewell. Exactly. And I was fascinated that if the center of the poetry, the organization, if the center part is most important, isn't it interesting that it's Isaiah? Well, it is. And Isaiah, of course, is the heart of Second Nephi. But Jacob and Nephi are on the flanks. And what Nephi begins in Second Nephi chapter 11 by saying is, we have to have three witnesses, because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, God will establish all things. Quoting Deuteronomy. So Jacob, Nephi, and Isaiah become the three witnesses. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. We aren't quite there yet. But I, I think that looking, zooming out and seeing the whole structure will help us as we dive in now to the beautiful patterns that we're going to see of the same um, messages that we saw in First Nephi, but now in a different light. And I, I think it always helps to try to get into the mind and condition and the context of the author. Why is Nephi writing this book? When is he writing it? And we'll see that as we go along throughout the whole book. And he's not just writing it in one sitting. I think to some extent at the beginning with the building of the temple. Yeah, that's still 30 years after they left Jerusalem, though. That's right. Yeah, but still, he does a lot of writing then. And then he will finish it. At the end of his life, which is then like 40 years since they left Jerusalem. So you have those 10 years covered by Second Nephi. Well, do you want to dive into the text? Let's do This is the only book in the Book of Mormon that has one author separating his book into two. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's still talking about his father. And I love the fact that it's Lehi as blessings that begin this book, this beautiful tradition in the old world of patriarchal blessings. I mean, we get it from Jacob. We get it all the way down that people have received blessings. Actually, Isaac gives blessings. We actually have two different kinds of blessings here. There are, you might say, uh, patriarchal blessings, which we are blessed to have in the church, Uh uh where you go to a patriarch who gives you a blessing, but there are also father's Father's blessings. blessings. Yes. And I think it's interesting to compare what we have in Genesis chapter 49 with what we have in 2 Nephi chapters 1 to in in a sense, what we have in Second Nephi are Father's blessings. 
where Lehi, as a father, is blessing his individual children, dividing his estate, giving people their assignments within the family, knowing that Lehi himself will not be there, wanting to be sure that he can somehow keep Laman and Lemuel a part of the family, but give Nephi some kind of leadership authority. So Lehi gives a rather unusual blessing by saying to Laman, Lemuel, and the others that are with him, you will have my first blessing, whatever that is, as long as you listen to and obey Nephi. Didn't go over too well, though, Jack. (laughs) Well, it didn't. But I think in Lehi's mind, he's trying to say, you can be administrators. You can have the first blessing of the double portion of the property. But you must listen to Nephi for spiritual guidance. So I think he sees a distinction there. It gives Laman and Lemuel an option and a possibility of actually following righteously, but being also not subservient to Nephi. In Genesis chapter 49, we have the precedent of a blessing by the patriarch, Jacob. So father's blessing and patriarchal blessings together. And the patriarchal blessing of Jacob gives kind of a designation of the character and attributes of each of those 12 tribes. And many people aren't aware, but Moses will give another kind of blessing at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33, where he will also bless uh, the tribes, including the Levites, who are very importantly included there. But now he's giving not so much personal blessings, but characterizing the nature of each of those tribes. And what do you see in Lehi? Well, in Lehi, it's kind of a mixture because he's trying to create a tribal structure. And all the way through, we will learn that there are seven tribes and these seven tribes continue. Mormon will mention the same seven tribes that are mentioned at the beginning of the book of Jacob. So we do have that establishment of the organizational structure of the the family and of the nation. But at the same time, we now have personal blessings. Yes. And we don't see that so much in the case of Laman and Lemuel's blessing, but Jacob and Joseph, oh, these are wonderful personal blessings. Well, I think all of them are. And in fact, the way Nephi has written them out is interesting. Now, you're the chiasmus king, but when I was going through just cutting and pasting, looking at these blessings separately, it was so fun to see how carefully he has paralleled some of their messages I just wanted to give an example because I really feel like if you are reading 2 Nephi, look for parallels, look for patterns, look for this as if it were written by a skilled author because it was. Joseph Smith had no idea when he was translating what the Lord would open up to a missionary's mind on these things. But starting in verse 13, you know, awake, shake off the awful chains of hell. And then in verse 14, arise from the dust. Verse 17, cut off, and they're going to be destroyed forever. Then in verse 18, he talks about this cursing that's going to come upon them if they, if they because they're going to leave the presence of God. And in 18, they're going to be in captivity of the devil. But in 20, the most important part of this section, he says, if you keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And that becomes a theme almost of all of Nephi's writings that we see over. And then the parallels come out. 
Um, they'll be coming down into captivity. They're going to be cursed with a sore cursing. They have to awake and shake off the chains, and they have to arise from the dust. This is just one of hundreds of examples that you have found. I'm just so grateful for your efforts on this. What you have here in this particular chiasm is an effort to speak to all of them together, all of my sons. He will bless others individually, but I like the way he uses the chiastic completion. A chiasm has a sense of completion and wholeness about it. You know what the author's intent is. You know when he's beginning. You know when he's ending. Yeah. And, and a center point. And in the same way, I think this has a sense of completion and fulfillment for the family and for everyone. It's, it's inclusive. And I think the Book of Mormon is very inclusive. It includes all family members. Lehi doesn't want to leave any of them out. He wants to point out the way that they can live, how they can succeed and be righteous. And he gives blessings as well as the cursings. I mean, he, he blesses everybody. You can do this. I, I love what you said about it's multi-generational. This blessing is not just for these seven. It's for their children. He gives another blessing and then another. It's kind of constitutional in a way. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, establishing giving principles, foundational principles by which righteous Nephites will succeed all the way through the uh, end of the Book of Mormon. And the answer is to keep the commandments and you will prosper in the land. And that keeping the commandments is a very important point. Uh, God here is giving to Lehi and his family a land of promise. Now, you usually think of the promised land as just one place in the Middle East. But the land of promise can be anywhere where it's a land which is given to people by way of covenant. So the land of promise is a covenant land, is what you're suggesting. Use that word so that we realize God's um, directing his people on earth. He is not an obsolete watchmaker who just developed this watch. You know, he's right here with us. And he blesses us with these promises and tells us if we will do the things that he commands, the land will blossom for our sakes, and land will blossom as a rose. Isaiah talks about a number of these things. Now, some people take the idea of a land of covenant or a land of promise, our promised land, and especially in the Middle East, some have said God's promises are indelible. If God has promised me, then this land is mine no matter what. Well, Lehi doesn't say that. Lehi doesn't. <laughs> Lehi says it's only promised if you're going to do your part. That's right. That's, I love your idea of a covenant. That's great. It's The promise is only intact if we obey. Yeah. So it's, it's conditional upon our performance. It's not conditional upon God's uh, approval or, or his providing it. It's all taken care of, but we must live properly in order for it to flourish and for us to be able to accept it. That's beautiful. Before we go into chapter two, I want to share my favorite verse in verse chapter one, verse 15. Behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory. I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. Lehi is on his deathbed and he has the love of God in him. I see temple symbolism in this verse. 
I see his view of the eternities, as our prophet calls it, the celestial, think celestial. I see this idea of being encircled in the arms of God's love, stemming clear back to his vision of the tree of life uh, when he was able to taste of God's love. And now at the end of his life, even though he knows things are not going to go well, he feels enough love from God that he, no matter how bad things are on earth, he trusts God's future plan for his family and for the world. Why is Jacob given this special blessing? It's interesting that he calls him always his firstborn in the wilderness. So he's, he's recognizing that Jacob has not had any of the blessings of living in a normal home or a normal town or community. He's always lived out in the wilderness. But he calls him his firstborn in the wilderness. I think that's because Jacob, righteous Jacob, good, righteous Jacob, who's still just a young boy, he's not very old yet. Lehi realizes he is going to become a leader as a firstborn should have been. So I, I see Jacob's almost surplanting Laman and Lemuel, but the blessing is powerful to Jacob. And I, I think, in a way, Jacob has been preserved from a lot of the temptations and problems of the world because he's only known life of isolation in the wilderness. He has only known the struggles. The family has not always pulled exactly together, but they have made it. And they have had prayers and they have had scripture study. He had enough conflicts in the house, I think, with all that animosity in the home. Because his dad even says in the blessing, um, Behold, in thy childhood thou hast suffered afflictions, much sorrow, because of the rudeness of thy brethren. But then the next verse discusses this beautiful ability for these challenges to be consecrated. Yes, in, in verse 2, then, Lehi says, Nevertheless, Jacob, my firstborn in the wilderness, Thou knowest the greatness of God. You don't know the greatness of kings. You don't know the greatness of Jerusalem. But what you know is the greatness of God, the God that you have seen in nature, in, the, in protecting us, in guiding us. You've seen the way the Liahona has led us through the fertile parts of the miracle wilderness. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And so he has had a steady diet of understanding and appreciating the greatness of God. So he doesn't live with some of maybe the torment or conflicts. Yes, he's had problems because of the rudeness of his older brothers. But I think that Jacob is able to put that aside. And because he knows that those afflictions have been consecrated, he can help other people make sacrifices and consecrate them at the temple because Jacob, as Lehi sees, will be the right leader to be the high priest in the new temple. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to finish chapter 2, verse 2. He's talking about the greatness of God, and then it continues on. He shall consecrate thine affliction for thine gain. Jack, I'm sure you felt that in your life. I, I feel this so strongly. Every time something hard has happened, the silver lining is so worth it. The beauty of God's plan that we can use our pain and our anguish to become more Christ-like, to become more humble, more meek, more sensitive to other people. I, I love this. He can consecrate our afflictions 
And Lehi will say this in a way that makes sense, that if there were no pains, there could be no joy. We wouldn't know either. And Lehi knew both. And, and so did Jacob. And you have to have both. And I think by extension, the more exquisite, the more difficult the suffering and the pains, the greater the joy eternally can and will be. It's interesting to me to see from this blessing, starting like in verse 5, we read about it throughout the Book of Mormon. Even Mormon and Moroni at the end are still relating back to things that they learned from Lehi's blessings. These doctrinal themes that are established here carry out through the whole Book of Mormon. Verse 5 says, Men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto them. By the law, no flesh is justified, but by the law, men are cut off. These kind of ideas, verse 6 is repeated elsewhere. Wherefore, redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, and he is full of grace and truth. Uh, the, the atonement becomes core to Jacob's ability to make these difficult things a blessing in your life. You have to go to Christ. Our hardships aren't always a blessing. It's only when we come unto Christ, we become at one with God. And then this principle that we're talking about, where the affliction and the suffering will then be commensurate with and result in the great glory and happiness, the Savior himself also lived that principle. No one has experienced more extensive, exquisite pains than he did. And therefore, he also has the greatest of all joys and powers and is worthy of our love and worship. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you. Right here in these initial verses, we see words like holiness, sacrifice, the importance of the Holy Messiah laying down his life and being the first fruits unto God so that he can then make intercession for all of the children. He has to do it first. Otherwise, someone who had done it first would be the intercessor for him. But he needs to be the one there who has led the way so that he can then make intercession for all of us. And first fruits are things that people would then normally consecrate in the temple. But Jesus is represented by those first fruits. So the first things that we gain uh, the, under the law of Moses the very first fruits that were picked at the beginning of each harvest when season. When you're the hungriest, when you need the food the most, you give those things to God. You give the best to That's God. Right. That's right. You're eager to finally have the results of your labor, but you first give to the Lord. Not only is he referring a lot to the atonement here, but back in verse 4 of chapter 2 is the first time in the whole Bible that we know of, they refer to the word, the fall. I'm fascinated with Joseph Smith translating these plates. And he gets to this portion, and there is so much information on not just opposition, but on the adversary and on our Savior, on Satan and Jesus Christ. So I just did a little study, and I've made a chart 
in the Old Testament, the only time the word Satan is mentioned basically is in the book of Job. Um, we don't have him in Genesis. We have one or two references elsewhere, but that's about it. Devil's never mentioned. Serpent is never tied to the devil. And Lucifer is never tied to the devil because they don't have it connected. It's not until the Book of Mormon that we really understand who the adversary is. And I think part of Jacob's blessing, because he had had opposition, because he had known both good and evil, his father is giving him this beautiful blessing that describes a lot, not only about our Savior, but about the adversary. And the fall we believe in the restoration was so important. And that was not known in the rest of the biblical world at that time. I think this is all one reason why the book had to come out then. He had to change the cultural dynamics of what Christianity meant. We did not understand the fall or Satan until the Book of Mormon. Especially people didn't understand what was happening in Genesis as what we would call a fall forward. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. And it's not a fall from, from grace. It's not a fall from uh, God's love. But it's a, we have to come down from a pre-mortal existence. And that coming down can be described as a descending. And I think that's where the word fall comes into play. It's sort of a free fall when the spirit comes down. Yeah, yeah. well, they're also falling from God's great, God's, um, the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So where do you think uh, Lehi gets this idea? Well, it's got to come from the brass plates because starting in verses 17 and 18, he starts talking about Adam and Eve. And this is also interesting because, you know, the Book of Mormon does not have a creation account. And yet we get more information on Adam and Eve in the Book of Mormon than we do in any of the biblical accounts, three times more than the Old Testament. But across the whole book, the Book of Mormon is filled with this information. When Nephi made that special trip back to Jerusalem to get the brass plates, Lehi knew that they needed to have those plates. And we're finding out now why. Ah, the brass plates had different information. They did. I think that Lehi, I don't know how much more was found in the opening chapters of Genesis on the brass plates than what we have in the Bible or in the book of Moses. But I think what was on the brass plates must have been much closer to what we find in the book of Moses. But what's wonderful is the way you have Lehi explaining what's there before we even know what's there. The ah. Joseph Smith translation hasn't even begun. No, not for another year and a half. But the, when we refer to the book of Moses, that is the Joseph Smith translation of those first few chapters of Genesis. That's correct. And three chapters are added in that were not there. And the reason why I think this is significant is because as the Jews and the Israelites are being taken captive, both up to Assyria and over to Babylon, they are reworking the scriptures. And we have lots of examples by biblical scholars of how those texts were changed and what was improved and what was rewritten and the difference between 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles and a lot of effort on that. And yet we don't have evidence of the original source until here. And Lehi is giving us this information that is consistent with the Joseph Smith translation, even though the Joseph Smith translation hasn't come to pass. That is fabulous. That is great. It's profound.
Lehi understands the necessity for the dichotomy, the opposition. There must be an opposition in everything. And if not, you really don't have, uh, certainly don't have a choice, but you probably also don't have discernment. We live in a world where we are confronted all the time with opposition. There's light and dark, hot and cold, wet and dry, uh, but lots of other types of opposition as well. Jack, do you think opposition is an eternal principle? I don't know that it's an eternal principle, but, but it's, it's certainly mortal. a temporal, okay. mortal uh, condition. Uh, we have time and eternity. Oh, I interesting. I think in eternity, there maybe isn't time, but we are now <clears throat> temporal beings. We know in this world, as Lehi says, if there weren't an opposition, then there would be no purpose in the creation. Things would become a compound, he says, in one. There would be no differentiation between righteousness, wickedness, holiness, or misery, good or bad. Uh, and he says, because of this, if it weren't for this opposition, everything would be as dead, having no life nor death. So verse 11 goes back to verse 8, where he's just introduced for the first time in the Book of Mormon, the idea of the resurrection. So the death um, follows this hope of the resurrection. This is, I think, our best chapter on the atonement and resurrection in the small plates. It's just a fabulous discussion that Lehi is giving him on this plan of salvation. Resurrection is not a word we find in the Old Testament, and yet it was part of the higher law, and so Lehi is teaching it to his sons and his daughters and his family. Well, and they need to know that because they're living in a world of death, and there must be an opposition. If there's death, there must be life, and resurrection is a part of that. Another interesting point here uses a phrase that will also show up much later in the Book of Mormon, and that's this phrase, to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And contrite meaning crushed. Where does this verse show up later? I don't know. Well, the words of Jesus speaking oh, of course. in Third Nephi, yeah. out of the darkness, he's quoting Psalms that talk about having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So Lehi knows that phrase from the Psalms, I would think. And he uses that to explain that Jesus, the Holy Messiah, will offer himself as a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law to all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You know, Jack, that's interesting because the broken heart, remember, a heart in the ancient world was the mind. In the Psalms, it says, as my heart thinketh. And so by saying broken heart, they're saying you have to change the way you're thinking too. It's not just your emotions. You've got to change the way you're thinking to accept Christ in your life or as a Messiah at that time. And I think also what he's saying here is that when you have a, a broken heart, it's like having a heart attack, right? Okay. You're dying. And in order to really live, you have to put off all. You have to die put off the old man, the old person. And if you do this, then the ends of the law can be answered and you can then have the, uh, uh, the blessings of eternal life given to you. 
but there must be this difference between mortality and eternity because there must be an opposition in all things. I want to move ahead to verse 21. We're still in chapter 2, but this probationary state, this time for men to prepare to meet God is so beautifully described. You know, the days are prolonged for the children of men, but they have the opportunity to repent. They might repent. You know, they sh- they have this given to them. And then it goes down in verse 22. If Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen. And all this builds up to verse 25 and 26. Adam fell that men might be, and men are, that they might have joy. And then he goes on to explain how that joy comes. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, and he may redeem the children of men from the fall. So there we have two references to the fall in one chapter. We have joy as an option for all humanity. um, And we have joy because the Messiah is going to come. He's going to suffer from our sins. No matter how bad life gets, we have a Redeemer. And then keep going into verse 27. You're free to choose. You know, we've got agency here. And I love the way he describes these two ways here. You can either choose captivity or you can choose life. And in 28, the way you choose life is to look to the great mediator. That is such a beautiful image of our Savior as the one who allows us to enter through him back to the presence of God. Another way of saying this is that if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, they would really have lived in a condition where choice was meaningless, where they really didn't have any particular choice because they would have remained in the state in which they were created. They would have existed but would have been static, and there would have been no progress or regress. There would have been no advancement, no uh, regression. Until they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They had to be removed from the presence and influence of God in order to act for themselves and not always be somehow influenced by other factors around them. And so the fall, as Lehi says, makes us free in one sense. It makes us free to choose either liberty and eternal life or to choose captivity and death. We sometimes think of free agency as uh, the power and the ability to do anything we want. I'm free. Sadly, that is not the case. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) There are consequences. And we don't get to choose the consequences. We can choose our action. But with those actions will come consequences. Our freedom is then that we can choose between consequences that we either know for sure or are likely to be able to figure out or through inspiration can be guided so that we don't make false or bad choices. But we become free only in the sense that we can choose one of two ways, as Lehi goes on to say. And that is that you can either choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men or captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. And here's another reference to the devil in this dichotomy between 
Christ and Lucifer. He's the great counterfeit. He's in opposition. And when you really think about it, any real meaningful choices that we make are either bringing you closer to goodness and to God or are taking you away from that. And this theme saturates the rest of the Book of Mormon. It does. Lehi's farewell message is so crucial to everything in the text. And we'll see this showing up in Alma's speeches, in Samuel the Lamanites, and of course, all the way to the end in Mormon and Moroni's writings as well. We almost can see here in the text this idea that we are going to have to learn from our own experiences to know what's right and wrong. This probationary state is for that learning. We're here to progress. We're here to learn. And if that means we have to fall off our bike sometimes and fall off a few more things, it's okay because God will consecrate all this for our gain. All these things will give the experience and be for thy good. And you know, this reminds me also of where Lehi would have had a vision that crystallizes all of this. And it's back in his vision of the tree of life. And there's the one path that leads to that. But there are other ways that lead to darkness and falling into the mists of, of uh, error and filthy waters and so on. That vision is part of rest of this book as well as Jacob. I feel like that vision is used a lot in the rest of the Book of Mormon and even right here in Second Nephi chapter 2. And I think the principle that we can take away from all of this, Lehi introduced back in verse 11 and then fills this out with the, uh, the doctrine and the revelation of the plan of salvation, illustrating the principle that there must be an opposition in all things. And he uses at the fulcrum the atonement of Jesus Christ. That becomes the pivot point. Accepting that or rejecting that is ultimately the, uh, the, the most foundational part of the existence that we are living in. And Lehi says, if we don't have this opposition, if we don't recognize Christ as the, the main point of the opposition that we must face, then it would be as if we were dead, having no life, neither death nor life, he says, corruption nor incorruption, neither happiness nor misery, neither sense nor insensibility. So all of these things that we just kind of naturally take for granted as a part of the human condition, all this opposition, really at the foundation, down at the metaphysical bottom of all of what we are, turns on this dichotomy between Jesus Christ choosing him or following Satan. And the whole reason why men are is so that we can find joy, but we cannot find joy without knowing the bitter. And sometimes I feel like that the plan of happiness is misunderstood to think, like, if I'm not happy, I must be doing something wrong. Or if something's going wrong, then, I'm, then God doesn't love me. No, 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 no. The joy comes from understanding both. And we are here to not only find our Savior, who is the source of joy, but to follow him. And that message is so clear here in first and second chapters of Second Nephi. I hope your scripture study this week is enhanced because of these great messages. They testify of Christ and we add our testimonies 
that Jesus is our Redeemer. And I would echo that too, Lynn. Saying, as Lehi did, I would that ye should look to the great mediator and hearken unto his great commandments and be faithful unto his words and choose eternal life according to the will of his Holy Spirit. I testify that that is a wonderful formula for fulfilling the purposes and the reasons why we're here on this earth. And God will bless us. I know he will. Amen. Amen.